0: Today on the podcast, I'm joined by former Syracuse basketball player, Roosevelt Bowie. I talked with Roosevelt about his love for fishing, his thoughts on this year's Syracuse team, and his connection with current Syracuse center, Jesse Edwards. Today, our guest is uh, should be a familiar face to most Syracuse fans out there, and definitely a familiar sounding voice, uh, because there's no mistaking it when Roosevelt Bowie is in the house. Roosevelt, how are you?
1: I'm doing excellent, Mike. <laughs> You know, you're one of my favorite, uh, you actually, you're in the top position as my uh, favorite journalist. After uh, fantasy camp, when you went out there and took a charge against a freight train and rolled about three blocks, when you got up, you're number one now.
0: Uh, we're just all glad I actually got up.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, they're, they're still pieces of skin on the Carmelo <laughs> Anthony basketball practice floor up there. It belongs to me.
1: We're like, take the charge, Mike. I was <laughs> like, oh my God.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I know there was a bunch of former players acting as coaches and counselors at that camp who got a real kick out of the sports rider uh taking part and some of them had fun at, with me. And Derek, uh Derek Coleman had <laughs> He, he took some sick pleasure in, in, in killing me in practice
1: oh it was it was that it was worth its weight in gold I don't know about the, if the campers enjoyed it as much as as much as we did we were out there doing the coaching thing then we just laughed the whole time everybody starts telling coach stories and you know everybody's got one and there's probably, there's probably 30 of us there so you can imagine.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I tried to be a fly on the wall for those uh, two or three days for some of those stories. Uh, I remember one time you guys were having breakfast and I kind of tried to sneak in there with the group and uh, uh, Herman Harreed was telling stories and Billy Owens was telling stories. It was a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, you know, before we really get going here, I, I know some folks will listen to this on various platforms, but some can actually watch it on YouTube and they can't help but notice that the uh, your background there, it is the beautiful shores of Lake Ontario. And that's, actually, you live yes, there.
1: Actually, yes, actually. So you're actually looking west and uh, that's actually the entrance to Bald Eagle Marina. It's about 300 yards from my house down there, but and I caught the lake flat as it never is. It's like twice a year, it's that flat, and I took the picture, and I used it for my background. It helps me to remember what's coming as soon as the weather gets warm again.
0: (laughs) Keep those memories alive. Um, Now, you like to fish those waters, right? uh, You're an avid fisherman.
1: Yes. uh, A lot of people, I don't know if they know, I started playing basketball when I was 14. I started fishing when I was six, and I I never brag about my basketball ability, but uh, if there's fish in the water, I can get it out <laughs> easily.
0: So, what what fish do you go for during what uh, seasons of the year up there?
1: Well, I'm uh I like panfish or so like uh, sunfish, but sunfish anybody can catch. Sunfish so like blue bluegill like that big. I like to go after the big ones. They're a lot smarter. They're a lot trickier. So you got to be a little craftier to get them. They taste fantastic. I also love perch, walleye. Um, I go for the occasional salmon when the weather's when the weather's right. But the, the beauty of the whole matter is uh, uh, November 1st, I just uh, started the Bowie Foundation. And I'm going to be teaching underprivileged kids to fish. That's
0: fantastic. You just started it.
1: We just started. I did. So, what I did first is I went out with a friend of mine, Guy Crump. He's a professional fisherman. And we started going out and and he introduced me to some people. I said, You got to put together a program. Everybody has great ideas. You have to put it in writing. So, it took me about a year and a half to put it down. So, we kind of, to put it very, very plainly, um, we did like a college course. So, fishing 101 is fishing with live bait from the shore. Fishing 201, is for those who don't like live bait they can use artificial fishing from the shore 301 is fishing as a passenger on a boat learning how a little bit about the graphs how to fish from from a boat be a passenger uh learn about safety on the water and 401 is we teach you how to launch the boat drive the boat read the graphs and you can choose when you're on the boat you can choose whichever you like live bait or or artificial and then the, the 501 class is you can either decide to be a professional fisherman and we'll point you down that, that road, or you can go back and become a mentor in the program. And the beauty of the whole thing is in the beginning, we try to work with groups of 20 to 25 kids. Um, I've talked to the Boys and Girls Club of Syracuse. I've talked to uh, YMCA in Medina. They're all excited about the program because we pick up um, – but those 25 kids, we split them up into four groups and one day you'll be doing classroom work learning about fishing and, and bait and how to do it properly and one of the days I teach them how to go out and identify an older boat, a used boat and we we, we bring it back. You know, I've been I've had three boats donated to me. They're just they're, they're deep V aluminum boats, 17 18 foot and then we take them apart and we fix them and we Show them, you know, that you can make a nice boat out of it. And um, then I have my friend, uh, Tom Ewing, that does Ewing, Ewing graphics. He does uh, the size of the Wegmans trucks, all the graphics on the side of the truck. Then he takes it and he gives me a, he makes, he prints out some fantastic vinyl and puts it on the sides of the boat. So we really upgrade these boats and uh, put the carpeting in and everything. And at the end of the, and at the end of the program, that group gets the boat that they work on and they finish Oh,
0: that'll be wonderful. Uh, what a great experience from uh, basically soup to nuts, uh, the whole fishing experience. Now, tell me this. Who, who was the first person to put a fishing pole in your hands? Who taught you to fish?
1: It was my grandmother, Rose Henderson. My grandmother was uh, about five feet tall, and she was, I think she's half Cherokee, which uh which I realize now because of all the home home remedies that we had to take growing up. Uh, yeah, she was the first to actually put, put a rod in my hand. And I was, as a, as a child, I was a little busy. I wasn't a bad kid, but I was always busy and doing things. And so I used to get, you know, Roosevelt, what are you doing? So after, after a while, so I went out with them one day fishing and I started catching fish and she said, Oh, look what my baby did. And it was like, she was praising me. And I was like, man, that's a whole lot better They getting yelled at for doing something messed up. So then I started focusing on. I liked that, so I'd catch fish. And by the time I was nine years old, I'd get up in the morning before dawn, and I and I and I was trusted to go out. I'd take my fishing pole and my my dog, and we'd go out, and I'd come back at the end of the day. I'd have a bucket full of fish to the point where she would go to church on Sunday and then trade, like because in the city they didn't. She went to church in the city. They didn't have access to fresh fish like we did. I would catch buckets of fish once I started getting, getting, you know, figuring out what I was doing. And she would trade them for a bushel of apples, or she'd trade them for vegetables. And and I, and then I started feeling all responsible. So you got this little skinny kid walking around with a fishing pole. And I'm actually, I could feed a family of five during the summer. I mean, I catch that many fish, they would just trade them off. And then, I, and then it gave me responsibility. And then I stopped being busy and getting in trouble. And And uh, then I turned about 14 and I was still going out fishing and I noticed this guy shooting baskets and I walked by the gym, he made a basket and I could have swore I heard, "Ah!" and I stopped and I looked and I, then I got the first chance I got to go to the gym, I go in there and uh, I'm in there a half an hour, I make two baskets. (laughs) But when I made those two baskets, man, did that feel good. And at that point I was lost. I started, you know, my focus was. Was uh, elsewhere, but uh, fishing has always been in the back of my mind. So I, what my fishing buddies are, Guy Ruff who played football at Syracuse, and our, well, we, oh. uh, we, wow. I, we have this ongoing thing. We we all swear that we're better fishermen than we ever were uh, athletes. First of all, um, I mean there there are stories, about uh, also so when I, when I was at Syracuse the football team, we were always hungry all the time, and. Art and Brian Ishman lived, always lived within sight of my back window because whenever I would go out fishing, I'd come back home. As soon as I turned the light on, they'd run down the hill, knock on the back window, come in and take out. You know, they're like, listen, we we can, we're going to have the, the funniest things. We, so, Art and Brian say, listen, we can cook fish. You know, we'll, you bring the fish and we'll bring, we'll, we'll, we'll have everything left to go with the fish. I was like, okay. So, I, I drop off. Oh, they had to be like, 25 pounds of fish. We had them all filleted out and everything, and I so I go away. I get all dressed up. I come back. I get into their little apartment. Their little apartment was on Harrison, just uh, just before, right at the end of uh, uh, what is it? The, the, the where the fraternity row is down there uh, by sure. the by the library. So they used to be in that that apartment right there. I get there, park my car, I come in. You know what we had for dinner? Just fish. <laughs> Fish and Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me, they gave us, they called it a garbage can. It was a big, it's like a 32-ounce cup, but it was the best grape Kool-Aid that I ever had in my entire life. It even had little, little, little orange, little orange on the side of the glass. And I just looked at him. I was like, "You guys are, you guys are no good." But that was the best fish that we ever had. Those, they, so those are my, those are my buddies back then, and we fished on. Oh, up until probably five, uh, four or five years ago, we'd we'd get together and we'd fish, and uh, yeah, it was that was that was my way to that was my way to get through, uh, playing in another country. We I'd make my phone calls with Guy and I'd say, "Listen, where where are we going to fish?" So we start making our calls back and forth, like in January, February, and then uh, I would literally fly into the states, drop my stuff off at my mom's house, get back on a plane, and and meet Guy wherever we decided to go. But normally it was around here, so there's some great fishing around here.
0: Okay, so you, you grew up in Kendall, New York. You go to Syracuse University, but you did like you just alluded to, you spent your entire professional basketball career, 12 or 13 years of it overseas. Yes. Did you ever fish in Europe?
1: I did. I, I, I fished. Uh, so I went, uh, well, there's, there are a lot of fishermen in Europe, but in Europe they're uh, – there are there are more fishermen per square kilometer than anywhere in the world. The only problem is they keep what they catch, everything. So there's very limited places to fish. So I would go up into the. So I'd take about an hour and a half trip up into the mountains. Matter of fact, I played with Lewis Orr for four months. I even took him up there fishing. I got a, some. I got some pictures. I'll show you at some point. we we're, we're up at a mountain. It's just a, a, a mountain place where they would go up and walk around this, this pristine lake, and they were there were trout. They would they would, uh, put trout in this lake, and I would just go up there, and I'd test out my techniques up there. But mostly it was just to get away and, and, and take a breather. I fished in Spain. I fished in Switzerland. Um, where else I fished And Actually, I went on uh, – I took a vacation to Scotland. I went there, and I fished in Scotland – where else did I fish. Uh this I went lucky. to lucky.
0: It's so amazing.
1: Yeah. So I, Where I was I the best fishing. To. Where was uh, the best? The best, the best fishing? And that right there.
0: Behind you, Lake Ontario.
1: Lake Ontario. Because guy, for, for probably seven years, we started researching the biggest fish, the best, the, the most the most variety of fish. And we came here every we came here like five years in a row because we have the most variety, the biggest fish the, I mean, I looked at, I looked at Alaska. They're, they're, they're pretty good. They're equal, but you had to compete with that hairy other guy, you know, the, the bears that like, when they see you fishing, they've come to the conclusion that when they see a man with a fishing pole, that there's going to be free fish at the end of the, and, and sometimes they don't really want to wait for you to give them the fish. So they want to come out and like take it from you. So I decided guy, we can fish near my house and we don't have to fight off the bears to get back to the shore. So. Matter of fact, uh, if you right, if going straight behind me west, about ten or eleven miles is Point Breeze, which uh, I think two or three years ago was voted as Fish Town USA. It's a little, it's a little small place, but people come from all over the country to fish for to go up um, Oak Orchard River and to fish for the salmon steel. Uh, we have a uh, steelhead salmon, lake trout. Um, I so my record for steel my biggest steelhead is about 14 pounds biggest rainbows 12 pounds my biggest salmon is 42 pounds oh my i caught God. A, i caught, I caught, I, caught a, I caught a male salmon 42 pounds that same night i caught two female salmon 130 pounds and 133 pounds it's uh it's, it's mind-boggling, and, and so when I would bring these fish home, so my so my sisters came. And they're like, "Where did you catch those fish?" And I said, "In the lake," because when the lake gets like that, we go out there and we s- swim and splash around in it. My sisters haven't been out in the water since I brought them the first pitch of the fish. They said, "Those fish are out there in the lake," because a forty-two pound, a forty-two pound salmon has teeth like a medium-sized dog. I mean, <laughs> and to be quite honest with you, I kept the two female, and I put the, I put the male back. So the male's, the male's tail was the size of my hands like this, and it was about that big around. So because you know you got to revive them before you put them back because they fight so hard. If you just put them back in the water, they'll die. You can't swim. So you got to put them back in. You got to kneel down. You got to push them back and forth. And the thank you that they give you is they, they do that swish with their tail where about a bucket and a half of water goes all over you. And, uh, but that, but that's it, but that's the kind of fishing that we have around here. And I've talked to Derek, Derek, uh, Derek Coleman, uh, Billy Owens first Derek. I told him that I would invited him down here for a fishing derby that I was, uh, that I set up and, uh, and, uh, and Derek, Derek goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'll go fishing. And Billy goes, what do you know about fishing? You're from the city. He's like, no, Rosie knows I'm from, I'm from down South. We all know how to fish. So we had this whole thing going on. And it was a year that we had really high water. I, I found five charter captains that were going to that would donate their time for all of us to come out and fish. So uh, who ended up coming was Dale Shackleford, Dennis Duval, and his family, and my family. And we went out there. And we had an absolute fabulous time. But we're going to do it again this year. Um, we're organizing a, a little event just for uh um. It's going to be. It, it, I'm trying to. I don't know what it's going to be for, but I know I want to get these guys together because you saw how much fun we have. When we're all together at the camp, so yes. just when we all get together, you it's mind. a lot of fun. So it's going to be this year coming up.
0: That that's fascinating stuff about fishing, and you know, I knew a little bit about your passion for it because we've talked a little bit in the past, and also if you follow you to follow you on Facebook is to follow a, a guy who cares about fishing. Where I'm, especially in the spring and summer, I'm, I'm always seeing your photos and generally jealous uh, of, of what you're doing. Um, but let's turn to basketball for a little bit. All right. Yes, the sport where most Syracuse basketball fans know you for. Um, You know, most fans know their story of coming out of Kendall, uh, coming to Syracuse. Um, But I've always loved the story about how you played a integral role in Jim Boeheim getting the head coaching job at Syracuse, where he was – being considered for the job after being an assistant to Roy Danforth and Roy right. leaves for Tulane. And as they're considering other folks too, Jim makes no bones about it to that committee that, listen, you get me, I'm getting Roosevelt Bowie. You don't take me. <laughs> now, did, were you very aware of what was going on there of of your role in that whole situation?
1: No, 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 but, we, no I wasn't. I knew I knew nothing about. It. But I wanted. I was looking at St. Bonaventure and Syracuse. I didn't want to look at St. Bonaventure. I I, di- I never visited Syracuse, but I came to basketball camp here at, at Syracuse. And when I was at basketball camp, Coach Beheim was like, he knew basketball. Like it. Ten minutes, you could tell just talking to him, he knew. He knew. He really knew basketball. I was like, oh man. And I was looking for the character of the um, of the coaches. So at a, at a young age, I knew that. I wanted to have a coach that had similar characteristics to my dad. My dad would, I don't think I heard him say like 10 words in a row. And coach Beheim, when he was first coaching, he'd come in and he goes, uh, Rosier, um, rebound pretty good. Um, I like where he's block shots, uh, and you're working on your offense. So you just keep doing it. That, that was my, that was our talk after, after, the, before the season, after season. Like that was it. He would say A, B, C, what we need you to do. Uh, and then next year, likes to work on you know the defense is good, work on your offense. You know, learn, keep plugging that middle. I was like, okay, I leave. That's what I work on. I said, what easier? So those are the things that that he said. So I see him at camp. He comes in one day. He's got on a polo and some plaid colored shorts, and evidently just came back from golfing. And he was had on a pair of fifty dollar Converse leather converse they just made the converse into leather Chuck Taylor's and he comes walking into the gym and I look at him he's got those little short socks and he's walking on the back of these shoes they're like slippers and he walk he walks in I was like man that dude's laid back I could do that that's something my dad would do <laughs> you know it, it it was you know it in my and back then coach Beham never yelled he would he tell us what he wants to do He'd say it, but not, not at us. He would yell at the refs and everything, but you never yell at us. Like my, my dad, my dad was like, he'd say, Hey, this is what I need you to do plain and simple. There was no discussion. So that's what I was, that's what I was looking for that, that type of personality, because I knew that at a young age that if I went with a coach that yelled and screamed a lot, it's not something that I'm used to. I know I've, I, my parents raised me right, but I don't. That bad day when I get up in the morning, stub my toe, and I go to practice, and that coaches a Bobby Knight type coaches. Ah, Oof, man, I like that gentle giant thing. But everybody knows when you have that bad day. I didn't want to take the risk of jeopardizing my my career, so I said, I know if I if I have somebody that has similar similar characteristics, and should he yell at me, I would be more docile because I, it's. I would be thinking like, okay, I did something wrong. So I got to, I got to do better. So that was my whole thinking. And then I came, uh, it makes me seem like a genius when I pick my coaches. But so I go down to, I'm looking at St. Bonaventure Syracuse. They, they have similar type players, but the key was they didn't have a center. I wanted to play right away. I wasn't going to a school with a center. My mother didn't raise a fool. So I was looking around. I want a school, no center. And, uh, and, I, and so I sit down with Coach Reynolds, who's was my high school coach, and I say to him, uh, you know, I really like Syracuse, but you know, Coach Reynolds is uh, – I mean, uh, Coach Coach Benham is not the head coach. Now, Coach Danforth was – I had no problem with Coach Danforth except I was a country boy. Every time I saw him, he had on a three-piece suit, a real cream comb-over, and uh, a fast-talker. And and so in my mind, I just – it reminded me of a city slicker. <laughs> now, mind you, he'd never done or said anything to me. It was my, my first – that was just my impression. And then when I see Coach Beheim, was like, slow talking, hey, you know, I was like, okay, that, that's good. But I said, but darn, he's not the head coach. So – and I said this to my Coach Reynolds. I said, you know, that's going to be just a tough choice for me. And I, I came to school one day. I think it was a Wednesday. And Coach Reynolds was at the – I got off the bus. Coach Reynolds was standing with the newspaper. And he said, I walked in there." he goes, your buddy's the head coach of Syracuse University. We walked right through the school. I called Coach Beheim, and on Wednesday, he came out on Thursday, and I signed. Wow. But I knew nothing about the whole, I found out about that ordeal because I was golfing with Steve Shaw, who was on the board at that time, and he said, man, Coach Beheim walked in here, and he said he was going to do this, and if you don't, and if you don't come with me, I'm gonna to go to Rochester, and I'm gonna take them there. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, really? But I, I kept thinking that possibly he may have, he may have had a conversation with with my coach, and I, and understood that I, I really wanted to go there if he was ha- if he was the head coach, but he, he wasn't. I'm beginning to think that they may have had a little chit chat because as soon as I got off the bus, he's standing there with the paper. We walked straight through the school into the basketball office, and we called down here at Syracuse, and uh, it was all over. It made me look like I was like a genius for waiting and picking the rights. Yeah, it was just that simple.
0: Well, and then from there, you got exactly what you wanted out of the deal. You started right away. You were the you were the center coming in as a freshman. You play four years, over fifteen hundred career points, almost one thousand rebounds and over yes. 300 block shots you're still number 2 on the all-time list for block shots behind Aton uh, Thomas.
1: You know when I found out that I was you know when I found out I was number that I was number 2? Okay. I, I I found out that I was number 1 when Etan broke the record. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd been out of the country for 16 years and I came back home and they're like, "Oh, this guy." Uh, and then I I liked the way Etan played and everything. Is like I broke your shot block record. I was like, what, what record? <laughs> the last thing that I knew about a shot block record, I think I had the, the, the single season. My freshman year, I had a lot of block shots, but I noticed the next year guy, I would, I would catch guys. I get up there and they would jump up with the ball and come down with it in their hands and tell me, you're not blocking my shot. Just get to traveling and hand it to the ref." I'm like, I wonder does that count as a, as a, that should count as a block. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it was and it, the reason the, the, you'll never guess why I started blocking shots because I didn't I didn't really block a lot of shots when I was in high school. Uh, so uh, sophomore, junior year, I didn't really block a lot of shots. If you, you know, if you got if you came right at me, I would. But I didn't really look for it. I came home. My mother I came home after the game that she watched. And uh, the other team had this uh really, really quick guard and he would come to the basket and he was you know, and he'd put those shots up there. And my mother just she came in when I walked in, so I put my bag down and she goes, Baby, it seems to me when those little guys come to the basket and they throw the ball up, that you could just put your hand up and just bat it away. And I and I stopped and I thought, I was like, Yeah, I could do that. And, <laughs> and You were
0: really new to the game, weren't you? <laughs>
1: I, listen, I, I played it because my cousins, saw, my cousins were playing. My my cousin Aaron is in the the Robert Hall of Fame, six four center. He could put a coin on the top of the backboard. He was a freak of nature. He was a also the goalie for the soccer team. And then my cousin Nate, who at six six, they say they they people say they had a thirty eight inch vertical. I want to explain one thing to you. I came back home one year from from Italy. And we played against the WDKX All-Stars, which were some guys in the city of Rochester. we were playing at the North Street Center. So I got in a little late, and there was Emmanuel Bowie, Nate Bowie, Aaron Bowie, myself, and one of my friends, I believe Ronnie Bet. So so I got there, I said, Listen, I can't play, I've got to stretch. So Nate goes, I'll go in, you you know, you stretch. So I'm sitting under the far basket and I'm I'm just stretching. So uh Nate is 6'60. He has his herky jerky handle, but he could really handle the ball. But he was playing as a 6'2 guy. So I'm looking down there. And this 6'2 guy picks him. He's going, he's going north. The guy picks him. He's going south. Separate directions. The guy gets the half court, slows down, and looks over his shoulder. And Nate starts running, starts coming at him. Nate was a soccer player, also. He reminded me so much of Randy Smith's build. He comes down, guy gets right to the basket, and he tries to throw one of those teardrop. Shots, so he just looks over, sort of waits for him, throws the ball up, and Nate runs down, and he's running as fast as he can. He throws the shot up. Nate jumps up and blocks the ball back to half court. Okay, you know how crazy that is? How hot he blocks the ball back to half. So he catches the ball. He was, he was so hot. He so he catches the ball. He turns, he blocks it back to half court. He ducks down, hits his shoulder blade on the on the on the the bottom of the backboard. Hits hits the backboard, the backboard shaking, and but he's still going. He lands fifteen feet out of bounds, does the Ollie shuffle and runs back up the court. And I went, I was like, dude. I could read Nike under your feet when you went past. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those are the guys that I was playing with. And, and we, you know, uh, Aaron, Aaron was a, a big factor. He's a big person. He said, nobody, nobody ever outworked him. He's a six, four center. So in my child's mind at age 14, I said, huh, if, if I can work as hard as he, as, as he does, I'm seven feet tall. I should be a better player. That was my child psychology. And oh, by the way, I am seven feet tall. But back in the day, it wasn't cool to be seven feet. If you said seven foot, you're like lurch, a big thing. Big, you know. <laughs> so I always said that I was so my actual height is six eleven and three quarters barefoot. But thanks to Nike Air, I'm over seven feet tall. Because <laughs> nobody plays ball barefoot, at least I don't, not my family. But that's how it all that's all, how it all got started. That's how I got introduced to the game of basketball. We were so competitive. Like we used to walking down the street, so my cousin's 6'6 had the incredible vertical. My vertical is probably 37, 38 inches, but I can reach nine feet three inches flat footed. I've got a seven foot six inch wingspan. God. But we used to do stuff like we you know the the old cars, the hood of an old Cadillac, we'd be walking down the road and my cousin would go, He'd go, "Uh, I bet you can't jump over that." And I was like, "You?" I said, "If you do it, I'll do it." We'd stand next to the car, about this far away from the car, feet together, because it didn't count if you got a step. You had to stand with your feet together and just jump up, over, and put your feet down and land on the other side of the car. Mike, if we it, he would, so he did it. I do it. If we just hit our heel on the car, we'd faceplant in the street. We'd never heard of either one of us. That's a, that's the stuff that we used to do. So walking down the hall in the school in Kendall, the ceilings are nine feet tall. And they have the drop ceilings, yeah, with the big, with the big things on there. What we used to do in classroom between classes, he would jump up and push a tile out, and I would with his head, and I would jump up and put it back with mine that <laughs> so everything was everything was a, everything was a competition you know and our teachers that you know they were the greatest thing about kendall was our so the district principal and the principal lived three houses from the school my my my, my math the math teacher lived uh, down the street um i mean everybody knew us and everybody also knew my mother when we first came to school my mother brought me in all five foot three and a half inches a hundred and 18 pounds she brought us in and she told it because i transferred from i I used to live in holly until i was age 13 they sold the house that we were in we were renting so i had to move so i moved basically six miles away to kendall so when we so when i came to kendall now the people in holly are still angry they they said that i left i was like no the guys sold the house that we're in so i had to leave (laughs) so when I come to school, so normally at age thirteen, you think it's kind of crazy to 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 move and you'd be all traumatized, but my I had like fifteen cousins that lived in Kendall that I would see like once a year or once every two years. All of a sudden, I'm seeing them every day. So I come in here and I see, I, so I see my cousins in my uh, so they so they walked up to me like, hey, what's happening? And I was like, uh, I'm fine. How are you? And they're like, why do you talk so funny? I'm like pardon <laughs> and I was like <laughs> <laughs> so what happened with my grandmother she said there will be no slang spoken in my house so we spoke precise English she said uh, and I'll never forget there it was uh Martin Luther King's birthday was not a holiday national holiday yet so I'm on the I'm on the bus and there' was probably a grand total of six black kids that went to school in Holly so we're on the bus going home and everybody's like yeah, no black kids are going to school tomorrow because it's Martin Luther King's birthday. So I get home. I'm like, I'm a I'm a, I'm a parrot. I get home. Yeah, grandma, no black kids are going to school tomorrow because it's Martin Luther King's birthday. My grandmother said, No black kids except you guys. And I said, What's for dinner? <laughs> because you you didn't argue with grandma. She said, She said we're going to school, we're going to school. Now was this grandma
0: Rose said, who taught you to fish? Yes. Okay.
1: And so then she says to me, she goes, Who do you think they will have more respect for? someone that skips school and wears their pants hanging off their butts and their hats on backwards or someone with a, with a, with a degree that can speak to them properly. And I went point taken. Now she didn't always explain herself, but this time she took the time to do that. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. To me. That's her. That, that's how I ended up coming to Kendall.
0: Uh, we've been on here for quite a while and we're kind of getting near to the end, but I, I I have to ask you a couple things. One is, Syracuse has uh, got a starting center now in Jesse Edwards, who also came to the game of basketball rather late, relatively similar to you. All, it, for him, it was because he grew up in the Netherlands. And I know you kind of have a special relationship with Jesse. And I wonder if you could kind of take me through how that developed and and just uh, tell me a little bit about you know, your relationship with, with the kid.
1: Well, it, uh, it started. So Syracuse went to Italy and uh to, they did this tour they went to italy and uh i sent a little i found out they're going to italy and i sent a note to julian i was like i'm so traumatized no one asked me to go <laughs> and then i got and the coach made it made a made something funny said, like, well you know who to send the note to so then i i ended up getting an invitation i went over and i traveled with the kids so that's when i met jesse's jesse's mom and dad uh simone and david and i and i talked with them and and I, I liked him because I was I always watched young kids when they first when they are playing without any rules. Over there they were playing without any they're just playing basketball. And I watched what they do then because eventually they're gonna have to learn how to do all the stuff that the, the, the zone and the defense and the offense. And I was watching him and I was like, Man, he's got he's got serious he could he was catching pets. I never I don't watch them how they finish. I watch how they catch, how they balance their movement. I was like, this kid is like like I was when I was maybe a end of my sophomore year beginning of my junior year and uh, except for i was meter in the rattlesnake i was a little bit tougher on the basket I, I was as big as he was but i was always tough that I, I think i was bigger stronger but so that was the fact so I, I was talking to them um i talked to his dad and his mom and and, and i just felt close to them they're great people and so i uh so we, we stay in contact on WhatsApp and we talk about, uh, you'll have questions about how to do certain things or something that I, I noticed when I watch uh practice, I, I had the uh, coach behind just gave me access to watch practice game film. And I would look at that. Uh, I mean, practice film, practice films. And then I would, and then I would tell Jesse stuff that I noticed, like things like always keep your hands up above your shoulders when you're in the paint uh, or something that, that, or something that I had a problem with, I would, I'd immediately tell him. First, I would tell his dad. His dad's like, "Why don't you just tell Jesse?" So we started texting back and forth about things to work on. Um, uh, because the coaching staff at Syracuse with, with the big guys, they they're putting them through the paces. The only thing that it's very easy to fine tune what somebody else is doing, and that's all because I I did it my I did it my whole life, so I can notice he does. He has a, all centers have certain kind of problems that 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 are easy for me to fix, and that's how it all started and that's how it moved ahead. And I, I met with him this summer. We had lunch, um, at Cracker Barrel. And, uh, uh, and, um, his brother Kai was in town. So we all came over, we sat around, we laughed, we talked, uh, I wanted to get him out fishing a little bit more, but we only went fishing once. I was doing, um, an exhibition at the, uh, at Auburn at the Bass Pro Shop. And Jesse came out there and we let him catch a few fish. though, so, you know, but, uh, it was good it was good to talk to him because he's like a sponge. It's one thing to talk to somebody and they just nod their head, but there's, there's, it's another thing when somebody's trying to learn something, they're like a sponge. And that's that's the way he's always been.
0: What kind of season do you think he's going to have?
1: Listen, I think Jesse will have the kind of season. See, it's kind of funny because when I talked to him, I was like, "It's you've got to work hard. I said, you don't have to be uh, mean or, or nasty. Because if you're intense and aggressive, a seven-foot guy doing that is really scary. So you don't have to be mean and nasty and scare people. If you're just intense and 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 and, and work the game like that, and if, if he does it that way, me personally, the the way the season went last year, you know, it was it was a losing season. But when he got hurt, they were the team was 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 moving upwards. And I still I felt they were in a they were in a prime position to do well in the postseason. And when he broke his hand, it just it, it just broke my heart because I felt that two things. I felt that had he continued to play that way, he might not have been here this year. I, he might have got drafted last year because the NBA drafts drafts big men for two reasons: because they're developed, or because they want to develop them. Hmm. And at that particular time, he was. That's all, I don't know if he was the the most improved player in the ACC, but that's all I ever heard about when you watch a game. Oh, this is just, he's improved so much from that. So he was on the radar for that. So I was a little, I was holding my breath because I felt that they were going to like snatch him away and, and give him like some intense, you know, stuff working on, working on this game as a big man. All of that to say, he will be as good as he wants to be. He's got to put the time in. He knows he's got to put that time in. Um, they had a hiccup the other day, but uh, that's what the preseason's for. My old saying is the best thing about men is testosterone. The worst thing about men is testosterone. <laughs> you, you can't get them to do what you want them to do until their butt hits the ground, <laughs> until what they're trying to do doesn't work. And I'm pretty sure getting beat by Cold day, was not what everybody had planned. Mm-hmm. And it's one—it's amazing the thing that happens after that happens when you lose something like that, it's amazing how you start listening to everything that everybody tells you in practice and You start paying attention, like you really must know what they're talking about because you know. But I'm 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 very excited. I'm very excited for him. I'm very excited for the team because it I've always thought Coach Beheim doesn't he doesn't make stars, he creates opportunities for people to step in and, and to excel. And so I, I get excited because I want to see who that person is. There's no, they, they're finding their identity right now. Somebody's going to step into that spot and he's going to be accepted as that leader. And then that's when things are going to take off. So I always like to watch the before and after and see when that particular, when the light goes out, like when the light went out for Jesse, uh, last year and he started putting together these games, that's, that's so, so fulfilling to see a young kid realize what, what the potential they has. And then there's no stopping. Then it's like, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. They see that I put this hard work in. I'm starting to play better. If I work harder, I'll start playing better. So it's uh, and it's just exciting for me because it's something that I witnessed, I went through, and that I did. And uh, so I'm I'm really excited to see how and how the team has got to figure out how to play together with him because with him, the, an inside outside game. Without an inside outside game, you're shooting thirty footers. With an inside, if you just let big man touch the ball, everybody, whether it's a good big man or not, watch what happens when you pass the ball to the center. Everybody, like it's like a magnet. And with the shooters, and it, we have one guy that can shoot from 35 feet. You have probably four guys that can shoot from 20 feet. And that's what happens. They suck them all in, he takes it, and he can pass the ball. He will pass it out. I mean, I uh, Bill Shockford would tell you that I never passed the ball, but I do remember I had three assists my senior year. Three. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but,
1: but the story behind that is this I said I said to them I said listen I don't mind if you shoot if you're going to shoot let me know so I can go on the opposite side to rebound but if you pass the ball to me and I'm 5 feet from the basket it doesn't make sense to me to pass a 5 foot shot up for a 15 foot shot or a 20 foot <laughs> shot but if you can shoot it go ahead and shoot it but if you pass it to me I can pretty much assure you that I'm going to find a way to get it to the basket. So that was our little joke.
0: I want to thank Roosevelt for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and follow all of our complete coverage of Syracuse basketball on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.